everybody. Hello, my name is David, and I am a very grateful Al-Anon. Isn't this a great convention? Have you guys had fun? I want to thank uh, Kay for calling me, I think, 14, 15 months ago and, and talking to me first about being a speaker here, and, and you and Carrie just for asking me to be here, the whole committee. Everybody in this room who's had a part in this weekend uh, deserves a round of applause. And if you're in the room, that means you. So, yay. <laughs> I noticed that they put the newbie very last in the weekend. You know, I think our first uh, Al-Anon speaker had 12 or 13 years in the next 19 or 20, and then we jumped to 40-some years, and eight. You're looking at eight up here. So I figured they decided I needed two days to learn some more or something, get some more experience to pass on. So, But fortunately, I know that I'm not here today to share with you what I know. Uh, I'm just here to share with you my experience. And uh, when I remember that, things go a lot better. So, Because uh, I came into the room with a lot of knowledge and uh, a lot of misery, and those things in my book were not supposed to go together, but they sure did. So um, anyway, so I'm going to ask you uh, to indulge me in a moment of silence in a moment so that uh, I can get a little spiritual help up here. Um, we had a workshop this morning where we talked about a couple different ways to use that, that moment of silence, and if you want to use one of those prayers, uh, Lois W's, which was inviting God to the meeting, or uh, if you want to pray for the newcomer, I know there's some new folks in the room um, and some maybe new or not so new that are in pain today. If you want to pray for somebody in the room who's in pain, um, I think that's a great use of the time. And if you have no other good ideas, please just pray to not judge the speaker. <laughs> Thanks very much. Okay. Oh, I had to get my watch out. My, I found out what was wrong with the microphone, by the way, in the workshop this morning. It was I had my cell phone up here uh, for my, to be my timer, and the electronic device did not like the microphone's proximity. So um, I have to have a watch because I, I tend also to be one of those members of Al-Anon and on and on. And on. <laughs> so um, what has been taught to me is to share with you uh, a little bit about what I was like, and what happened, and what I'm like today. And I know it's a gorgeous Sunday morning in June, and so uh, if some of you feel like you can't stay for the whole talk, I'm going to give you the ending now. What I was like when I came into these rooms was an amazing, nearly perfect person living a very flawed and imperfect life. And a very short eight years later, I am a flawed and imperfect person living an amazing and nearly perfect life. And the middle part of what happened was I found you guys. And fortunately, when I found you, I was in enough pain to listen to what, to, what you had to say. I'm told that there is no one too dumb to get this program, but there are some of us who are too smart. And I was borderline too smart to get this program. So I'm so grateful today for the pain that I was in when I got here. So, um, and by the way, you won't hear me use the word qualifier. I, um, I qualify for this program because, of course, I uh, know and love alcoholics. 
But I don't use the word qualifier because for me, it, it can send a message to me, if I'm not careful, that the alcoholic is the person responsible for my ism or for my trouble. Uh, or from my lack of serenity. And my problem lies between my ears. My problem is and always has been how I think, just simply how I think. And some of you learned this morning I, I'm a fan of acronyms, and so I hate to start with that one, but that's my problem, simply how I think. Spell it out. Um, anyway, so I was born... Um, Oh, gosh, a long time ago. <laughs> but I was not born into the family uh, in which or with which I grew up. Uh, I learned at a very young age from my very first memory that I was adopted. And my parents, who had also adopted a little girl, we were two years apart, still are, um, uh, they adopted both of us uh, at seven weeks old. And so, you know, practically newborn, but not quite. And you know how kids can be sometimes when you're growing up, they're, um, they like to pick on each other, right? And um, all it takes is somebody being a little different, and you get picked on. And, and I guess somewhere along the line, I shared that news with some of my school friends, and they started making fun of me. And my parents said, don't let them make fun of you. Just respond by saying, your parents got stuck with you, and mine chose me. <laughs> a very sweet thing to say to a child. However, it lands in this head, and what I hear is, I am among the chosen. <laughs> First message. So, uh, so I grew up in this very wonderful home with a mom and a dad and a sister, and we're in suburbia in upstate New York, and it's the early 60s, and, um, you know, life is good. And I, I remember having a really a wonderful childhood for many, many years. And one of the reasons I think I had a wonderful childhood is from really, really early on. I mean, I don't know, age three maybe? I felt a connection with a God of my understanding that was very rare in my experience. And um, it, it just, I mean, we would we said our prayers before we went to bed. I went to Sunday school uh, at a fairly young age. I think I was nine or ten. I started teaching Sunday school. I ended up being the church organist uh, for a while, or at least substituting church organist when I was 12 or 13. So I was very, very involved in my church. And it wasn't, you know, I, I felt that some of my classmates in Sunday school and that kind of thing were just sort of going through the motions. And I really felt very deeply this this connection with this God that I was taught about. And so I you know, added that to the fact that I was chosen, um, started to separate me a little bit from my fellows. Um, so other things happened that uh, kind of helped this message along. When I was, uh, I don't know, eight or nine, we were on a trip one time in the car, and uh, we pulled over at one of those rest stops, you know, along the highway. And where we, where we pulled in, somebody had emptied their ashtray, their car ashtray, on the gravel, just right there by the parking lot. And my dad started shaking his head and said, oh, people who smoke are such pigs. Now, I'm eight or nine, and I said, really, Dad? You can tell that from looking at one little piece of, of ground? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, there's a Coke bottle over there. I said, are all people that drink Coke pigs? I was really wise for my age, wise as in wise cracker. And... Uh, my dad said, how did you get to be so smart, and smacked my behind, and we got back in the car and drove away. 
When I was 14 uh, and my sister was having her 16th Sweet 16 birthday party, my mother had gone all out and planned this really wonderful party for my sister at the house, and all of her friends came, and it was really a, just a wonderful thing. I think my sister loved it. And when it was over, my sister uh, waved to my mom and said, goodbye, I'm going to go out with some of my friends, see you later, and left. And the house was empty, and I was there with my mom. I don't remember where my dad was at the time, but my mom sat down on her bed and started to cry. And I sat down next to her, and I said, why are you crying, Mom? And she said, well, Lisa doesn't appreciate me, and I threw this wonderful party, and she's gone. And, and I said, Mom, I said, can I ask you a question? And she said, sure. I said, did you throw this party for Lisa so that she would stick around and thank you? Or did you throw the party for her so that she would have a 16th birthday party she would never forget? And my mom stopped crying, and she looked at me, and she said, how did you get to be so smart? And she meant it. Now, by this time, when I was 14, it was also known in our family that my mother had what was called by my father a drinking problem. And actually, years before her father died, he actually warned my dad, based on some behavior apparently that he observed long before anybody else saw anything, you watch Lois, you make sure she doesn't end up like L, Aunt L, who was an alcoholic in the family. And my, at the time, my dad just thought, Pfft. And, um, but sure enough, my mom started exhibiting behavior. They say, you know, if it quacks like a duck and walks like a duck and it's probably a duck, well, she looked like a duck. And um, I remember at the time my mom worked in the school system where I went to school, and so I had to be very secretive about who I talked to. Normally, you know, I think a kid uh, often will go to their guidance counselor and say, here's an issue that's going on at home, that's why guidance counselors are there. I couldn't do that. Uh, just out of respect for my mom and her, her profession. Um, and so it, it was, you know, I learned really early on that alcoholism is that little secret that you just keep inside. And I'm told we're just only as sick as our secrets. And I started getting sick really early because I had the secret and I couldn't tell. Well, eventually, I don't know what happened. Maybe there was a, a meeting and guidance counselors assured us of, of confidence and all the rest. I did finally share with my guidance counselor that there was a drinking problem in my home. I don't know if I said it was my mom. And I was given a pamphlet from Alatine. And I read the pamphlet. And in the pamphlet, I learned that alcoholism didn't make my mother bad. It made her sick. And the person that my mother had become, and often did when she was drinking, which was kind of rude, kind of disagreeable, sometimes mean, and eventually just passed out on the sofa, that that was just a symptom of her disease and that she really had no power to change that and that therefore I wasn't to think that she was bad. And I got that, that I was smart and that landed on my head. And I said, got it. Well, again, a good, a good piece of information landing on this head says, I need to take care of my mom. I need to befriend her. I need to be her solution. I need to make it okay for her. And that's what I set out to do. And of course, at the time, I had no idea that I was also alienating uh, my sister and my father in the process, and that I made them the enemy because they weren't as compassionate and wise and understanding as I. So I befriended my mom. And uh, it was my job to take care of her, my self-appointed job. My dad traveled some for business, and uh, when he would go away, he would pull me aside and he would say, if your mom's been drinking, you make sure she doesn't get in the car and drive. I said, okay. And I made sure. And I remember having tug of wars with my mom in the driveway 
with the keys. No, you can't get in the car. Yes, I'm going to get in the car. No, you can't get in the car. At a very young age, I became responsible. Well, fast forward to when I was a senior in high school, and my mom found sobriety a little at a time, and then finally it stuck. And uh, I graduated high school with a sober mom that I was sure was sober mostly because of me and my kindness. And uh, then I went away to college, and for the next 10, 12 years, more maybe, um, I was convinced that alcoholism was going to be just a little footnote in my life story. And that what it had done was it helped me to grow up really quickly, become even more wonderful and more amazing and more wise and more spiritual, if you can imagine such a thing, and wasn't the world lucky to have me in it. Well, I skipped over an important detail of my story, and that is that as a teenager, I also became aware of something else, and that was that I was in another way different from most of my fellows, and that is that I was not attracted to the little girls. I was attracted to the little boys. And I received the message from my family and from my church that that was not okay. In fact, that was just about the worst thing you could be. And so I grew up with this dichotomy, this, this huge paradox in my head. I like to think of it as, you know, I, I was this piece of crap around which the whole world revolved. I learned later in this program through some of my step work that that is a character defect that my sponsor calls better than, worse than. I, can, I have this gift. I can walk into a room and tell, tell you in an instant who I'm better than and who's better than me, just because I'm very clear. It's a gift. <laughs> so on the outside, I'm this amazing, wonderful, perfect, fabulous spiritual entity. And on the other hand, I'm this piece of crap that if you really knew the truth about me, that I'm gay, you would disown me and spit on my face. Welcome to my 20s. So by this point, I'm working in a church. And one day, the minister gives a sermon in which he says that 12-step people, people who are in 12-step programs, are some of the most spiritual people and, and therefore wise and, and uh, good people that he knows. And he goes on at some length and talks about 12-step uh, programs and what it's done for, for people spiritually. And he said something like, we all should be so lucky as to qualify for a 12-step program. And I remember sitting right there that day and just praying a little silent prayer. God, please help me qualify. <laughs> yes, God does answer prayer. Um, and of course, you know, at this point, it, it was unknown to me, but I already did qualify uh, growing up in the alcoholic home. But again, fast forward a number of years, and just, you know, very quickly, in those years, basically how I spent them was looking for Mr. Wright. And part of the reason I did that was because uh, I think the same reasons any of us seek out a spouse is that we want to be partnered, we want to have love and family and uh, a connection with another individual. And, and that's a very wonderful and healthy goal, in my opinion. Um, however, I also know there was another part of me that sought this other person to become okay, to become whole to convince myself and probably more so my parents that I was actually okay, that I was right with God even. 
And so I set out on this spiritual journey to prove through study of scriptures and philosophy and delving into theology that, uh, that God still loved me, even though I was this horrible thing. So I arrive uh, in my early 30s, having had a number of significant relationships. Some of them uh, live in three years or so, about was the max, and it never worked out. It just never worked out. Uh, mostly it didn't work out because because I left. Not because I left, beg your pardon, because they left, because I was scared to leave. I wouldn't leave. Because also I think there was this small tape in the back of my head playing that said, you were adopted, and this was not conscious, okay, but after some step work, I, 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 I'm betting that some of this was my tape in the back of my head. You were adopted, therefore you were given up early, meaning you weren't wanted, so you better find somebody who wants you and isn't going to leave you this time. So, but none of these relationships worked. I, I believe that's because none of them were alcoholic, frankly. I, um, <laughs> I've, I've seen it happen time and time again, you know, whether you think, uh, you, you decide which is the alcoholic and which is the Al-Anon, but one of us has horns in our head and the other has holes and they just fit. <laughs> and uh, I hadn't found the person who fits. Until one evening uh, in March of 2000, I was online searching for the next Mr. Wright and popped up on the screen this message from this person. And we chatted online for probably, um, I don't know, 45 minutes, I think at least an hour maybe. And then we decided we would talk on the phone. And we were on the phone for another three hours. And by then it was three or four in the morning. And we made a date for breakfast about 28, later, 20 hour, 28 hours later. And so that Wednesday, March 13th of 2000, I met the man who is now my spouse. And, you know, he came for breakfast that morning. Uh, we went about our day. Unplanned, he came back uh, and stayed that night. And uh, it wasn't like we were physically intimate right away. That didn't happen for a while. But we connected in a way that I had longed to connect with someone my whole life. This was a man who had this amazing spirituality, almost as amazing as mine. <laughs> he had and has this, this beautiful, mellifluous voice that just hypnotized me when we were talking. He's 6'5". He's got dimples for days, right? You saw the picture. Where'd she go? Um, yeah, yeah, Jody can agree. Um, and, you know, just, oh, I mean, anybody... Well, if you're interested in guys, <laughs> just saying. Uh, which is most of you in the room, which is part of what makes me comfortable in Al-Anon. <laughs> anyway, you know, the ODAD is full of references, my husband this, my husband that. I'm like, it works for me. It works. Um, anyway, we, we again got into this relationship. Relationship. Really exciting love affair turns into outrageous nightmare. Serenity hangs in peril. Okay. When I do this with my finger, that's the acronym, okay? I'll spare this for later. So, you know, we just, we just joined, and we, we fell in love, to say the least, and it was amazing for probably at least five or six days. <laughs> and five or six days later, we were in his kitchen, and he said something, I don't know what it was, and I responded, and how I responded apparently wasn't the right thing to say. And all of a sudden, it was like a, a switch was flicked, and I saw this person that I had never seen. 
And he, he, he was like this ball of rage. And it scared me so much, I backed up into the counter behind me. And he said, well, what was that? And I said, exactly, what was that? And he said, oh, I, I, I'm sorry. And he came and he gave me a hug, and everything was fine. Now, I did not know at the time that that was my first view of alcoholism. Because at the time, I still thought alcoholism had something to do with alcohol. And this man was sober as a priest at that moment. So it just fell in the back of my head, and I didn't think any more about it. But over the next several months, this started happening a lot. And I started noticing that um, I could say the wrong thing at the wrong time, and it was like I was looking at Mr. Jekyll and Dr. Hyde, or is it Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Now, what I also didn't know at the time was that some of the things that I said that set him off were my Al-Anon-isms. At the time, I just thought, what is his problem? Why wouldn't an adult male need to be told how to empty the grocery cart at the grocery store? I mean, we all know that there's a right way and a wrong way, right? And I I won't even give you all the other examples because they're ridiculous. But we started this pattern where I, I, and in fact, I called him... uh, on it uh, eventually and sat down to have a conversation. I said, I feel when I'm with you, I'm, I'm walking on eggshells and, and I don't like it. And he assured me that um, he was aware that he had this little emotional issue and that he would be working on it. Well, I'm, I'm going to skip a lot of this because um, what followed in the next couple of years was just the insanity of alcoholism. Um, it, involved, uh, it involved me ending up in the emergency room one night uh, after really ugly evening. Um, it involved um, untold verbal abuse and physical abuse and the alienation of our friends and most of our family, at least as far as conversations that used to be 45 minutes or an hour on the phone, long distance uh, relatives were now 10 minutes because I, I, I sure had nothing to say. And um, the, the time that I ended up in the, uh, in the emergency room, uh, by the time that had happened, I had already come to my solution for this problem, which was to propose. Because I was sure if I could make it okay and get him, that it would be okay. Because that's me. So, um, so when this violence happened and I said, the wedding's off, we planned a wedding. I said, the wedding's off and I'm done. And he said, after finally reaching me, because I wasn't answering my cell phone for a day, and I kicked him out of our apartment, which was mine first, um, he said to me, I, I want you to know I realize I'm an alcoholic and I need help. <laughs> Got you where I want you. Because the next words out of his mouth were, and if you will take me back, I will, and I quote, spend the rest of my life making this up to you. Yay! <laughs> Perfect. Because what's better you know, than someone who loves you than someone who loves you and owes their life to you? So we were set. And uh, he agreed not to drink anymore before the wedding. That was, uh, I don't know, eight months or so before the wedding. And come August, we had a beautiful wedding with uh, kind of in a room about this size with about as many people. Oh, the, the reception or the, the wedding was outside it was beautiful, and then uh, following this this wonderful reception filled with friends and family, we took off to Tahiti. How nice! Ten days in paradise. 
and part of the package was a champagne dinner. <laughs> yes. And he said, I'm going to split this bottle of champagne with you. And I said, okay, you know, there we are in our, you know, our lays and our floral shirts. And it's like, we're in paradise. You know, what could go wrong? And so we split a bottle of champagne and we had, you know, a pretty nice night. And again, fast forwarding, you know, we got home. The drinking just continued. You all know alcoholism is a progressive disease and untreated, it gets worse. And Al-Anon-ism is a progressive disease and untreated, it gets worse. And two years later, I'm just done. Just done. I'm done with rehab centers. I'm done with damaged cars. I'm done with broken furniture. I'm done with the, with the abuse. I'm done. I'm just done. I'm empty. I'm, I'm just empty. I'm a shell of who I used to be. I don't recognize myself, and I don't have a plan because my plan was to be married to this person for my life. And I stood in front of 150 people and promised to be married to this person for the rest of our lives. And I took that vow very seriously. I was not going to leave. But I couldn't stay. And so what, what could I do? And so at this time, I got up the courage, frankly, to tell a friend what was going on at home. And, I, and he had sworn me to secrecy. You can't tell a soul. And I... You know, again, I don't take vows lightly. But for my sanity and probably for my survival, I had to tell someone. And I told a friend of mine who at that point had had about 18 years of sobriety in AA. And she was on the East Coast, and I'm in Chicago, and we had a great talk. And, and, and I said, I don't know what to do. He's, he's, I've never seen him like this. And he's miserable, and he needs me. And she said, what do you need? I said, what do I need? What do you mean? She said, what do you need? I said, I haven't a clue what I need, but I need something other than what I have. And she told me about Al-Anon. And I said, I know how those programs work. I'm going to go to a room. I'm going to sit at a table with people, and they're going to not give me advice, and they're just going to talk, and somehow that's supposed to make me better. That's not what I need. And she said to me, you didn't get this sick in a day or a week or a month, and you are not going to get better in a day or a week or a month. But a day at a time, you're going to show up and you're going to listen, and you're going to listen to how other people who have been through this did it and keep doing it, and you're going to do what they did, and your life is going to change. And so I found that a mile from my house was uh, an Alano club, and I went, and I walked in, and I couldn't breathe. It was just smoke everywhere. And I have an allergy to cigarette smoke. So I was like, well, I can't be here. But I did get uh, a directory. And I started looking through, and there's a lot of meetings in Chicago. So this is a large directory. And I found some meetings that were somewhat near my house. <clears throat> and I looked in the, in the directory, and it said Al-Anon. Oh, no, it said, it said AFG. You know, Monday nights when I thought, AFG, AFG, what's AFG? And I looked, and it said Al-Anon family groups. And I was like, these are the meetings for people with kids. <laughs> I really, I thought, I thought Al-Anon family groups meant that you, that you bring your family. And what I've learned is that it just means it's where you come to meet your family. And I had no idea when I walked into my meeting that Monday night that I was going 
to meet my family, but that's what happened. And I walked into this room of about two dozen, maybe 30 women. There was one guy. And unlike some of the experience some of you had, my meeting was filled with uh, young, I would say, 20s, 30s, and 40s uh, women, beautiful women. I mean, I was like, these women are gorgeous, uh, with kids. And they were all talking about their kids, and some of them had their kids with them. And they got up to share, and I was just thought, I have absolutely nothing in common with any of these people. Why am I here? Why am I here? But the, the meeting opening that was read first uh, had a couple lines that kind of caught my attention. And when the speaker for the evening got up to speak, her husband's sobriety date, which she gave, was my birthday. Now, I'm told that coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. And I didn't know that at the time. I just knew, and today believe, that God knew if it wasn't going to be about me, I wasn't going to stay. So you all had to say something that was about me. And I left that meeting with a bunch of phone numbers of women who said, call me, and they meant it. And on the way home from that meeting, I called two people because I was done being alone, just done. And thank God that I landed in a very strong meeting where sponsorship is talked about and steps are talked about and people are laughing. And before, I think four weeks passed, I had a sponsor. I asked this person if she would sponsor me. And she said, I will sponsor you if you're willing to do what I have done and continue to do. And I said, well, what's that? And she said, this is what you commit to. We will find a call time where you will call me. I'm expecting your call seven days a week for 30 days, after which we're going to go to five days a week. You will go to two minimum of two Al-Anon meetings a week and an open AA meeting and learn about this disease. You will pray on your knees. You will read conference-approved literature. You will be of service to others, and you will work the steps with my direction. And I said, it sounds a little fanatical for me. <laughs> what I didn't know is that I had God with me. I, um, you know, I was raised in a tradition that talks about something called a triune God, and I have a completely different understanding about that today. The three gods for me, the first one in order, was the gift of desperation. The next was the good, orderly direction that I got from my sponsor. And the third I found in open meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, or group of drunks. God, 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 everywhere. And so I started doing what my sponsor told me to do. And I'll be honest with you, a lot of it I didn't like, a lot of it I didn't agree with, a lot of it, some of it I didn't have any clue what it had anything to do with me recovering. But I did it. And I started to notice I was changing. I had, uh, I had dinner with a friend not too many months after coming to Al-Anon that I hadn't seen for a while, and we were sitting across the table, and after we got our meal, we'd been talking for a while, he, kind of cocked his head a little bit, and he said, you know, he said, something's different about you. 
And it, it didn't occur to me until the words were out of my mouth. And I said, you know, that's because I recently resigned from my self-appointed position as general director of the universe. <laughs> One day I was uh, sitting on the sidewalk before the, the door had opened to the church where our meeting met. And my sponsor was, uh, happened to walk up and find me sitting there crying. And she said, why are you crying? No, she didn't say that. She just gave me a hug. Did not put details that aren't there. She just gave me a hug. I think, I think eventually she did say, what's wrong? And, um, and I, I said to her, I am having a really hard time letting go. And she said, I know. And she reached in her pocket and she gave me this. She didn't have to look for it. It was right there. I said to her, I'm having a really hard time letting go. And she gave me this little card that says, let go. To let go does not mean to stop caring. It means I can't do it for someone else. To let go is not to cut myself off. It's the realization I can't control another. To let go is not to enable, but to allow learning from natural consequences. To let go is to admit powerlessness, which means the outcome is not in my hands. And it goes on. I won't read the rest of it. And at the time, of course, I was working step one and having a hard time with it. Because, well, let's be frank, most of the steps insulted me. They were below my intelligence level. First of all, except for step one and 12, they were not complete sentences. And uh, I remember pointing out to my sponsor a few different ways uh, that they could be changed. And by the way... I'm, I'm pretty good, you know, on the computer, and I'll be happy to retype these for the group. <laughs> Beside the fact that God is referred to as him in the steps, which all spiritually evolved people know is wrong. God is genderless, people. So thank God, I know you're all saying, I arrived to fix Al-Anon. I don't know about the rest of you, but when, when I came, I didn't have a lot to offer you except my sickness. And being the good Al-Anon that I am, I always have a better idea. I always know how to do it right. I always know I can edit and improve anything. I'll have to tell you my favorite Al-Anon joke, since this is a, a convention with uh, AA and, and Alateen participation. This, this sums me up <laughs> really well. So long ago, there are three people that are to be hanged in the village square. And the, the first one is an Alateen. And he walks up to the, to the, uh, to the platform, and uh, they say, any last words? And he says, no. He says, uh, thanks. I've been an Alateen for five years now. And, you know, I uh, did my fourth step and made my amends, and I'm, I'm really, I'm good with God. And they said, okay, step up. Puts his head in the noose. They pull the lever, and the platform does nothing. The guy says, well, I guess it's God's will that he should live. Okay. The AA steps up. They say, any last words? The AA says, nope, good with God. 25 years of sobriety, sponsored dozens of guys. It's all good. I'm, I'm good. Here we go. I said, okay. Puts his head in the noose, pulls the lever, nothing happens. The platform doesn't move. They say that again. Well, I guess it's God's will that he should live. Then a brand new Al-Anon steps up. <laughs> Takes one look at the thing and says, I can fix that. <laughs> 
wisdom. So here I am talking about powerlessness with my sponsor, and and I, you know, I know, I know that I have very little power. I know I have very little power. I mean, very, very little power. You know, it never occurred to me until years later that when you have a power failure at your house, you don't have very, very little light. <laughs> You're powerless, people. It's dark. It's black. Powerless means zero. And um, and I found the definition for me of powerlessness that, that finally, because maybe some of you had this experience in in trying to understand and, and get around or live with an alcoholic spouse who was drinking, it, it's a disease. It's a disease. Yeah, it's a disease. Okay, it's a disease. So if it's a disease, go get help. Why don't you go get help? And, and I found this in uh, one of our very original books, long out of print. It's called uh, Al-Anon Faces Alcoholism. If you if, uh, are so inclined to visit uh, some online site where you can find used books, please get this. It is just the whole book is wonderful. And this solved it for me, finally. It says, I learned that an alcoholic is a human being in pain, emotional pain. He uses alcohol as an anesthetic to escape from his pain. And it isn't until the pain he suffers from his drinking is worse than the pain he's trying to get away from by his drinking that he will stop. Now that summed it up. And what had I been doing for the previous several years? Trying to stop the pain. In so doing, trying to prevent the very thing that would lead, perhaps, to sobriety for the person I love most in the world. Wrong. I had no idea I was wrong, but I was wrong. I came home one night from uh, from the meeting, and we, we about mm, six weeks after I came to the program, we got a little puppy, and uh, my husband Anthony named him Amos. Chose the name Amos, and I came home, and Amos was sitting on the kitchen floor with a big smile on his face next to a big puddle. <laughs> and I looked at him and shook my head and went and got the paper towel and cleaned it up. And it occurred to me I didn't know where Anthony was. And, of course, Anthony was in the next room passed out. And I was furious. And so I'm cleaning up this puddle, and I'm taking the dog for a walk. A little too late, but nonetheless. And it occurs to me, why am I mad at the alcoholic? for doing what alcoholics do when I'm not mad at the puppy for doing what puppies do. That was my first spiritual awakening in this program. And I will tell you what, my little dog Amos has become one of my greatest teachers and I decided that his acronym was a messenger of serenity. That's what he is for me. And I'll tell you what, there were a lot of days in those first few months where I wanted to come home from the meeting uh, after coming home from the meeting and, and finding Anthony passed out or in some state of inebriation, yell and do the thing that I did. Because, you know, I had, I had heard about the three C's, the you, you didn't cause it, you can't control it, you can't cure it. I had been stuck in the four B's before, bitch, bitch, bitch. So <laughs> there, were, there were many days where I, I wanted to do that. And instead, you know, I would call my sponsor and she'd say, take the dog for a walk. <laughs> and I did. So... Um, Anyway, I want to I want to try to skip a lot of stuff here. Um, I can tell you that the step, the the steps of this marvelous, miraculous, magical program changed my life. Um, my I I, I got to get this in because it's my favorite uh, acronym that I actually decided we needed to find an acronym for magic because I kept hearing the words and 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 saying them and me, like it's magic. What's happened is just magic. Magic I've decided is me accepting 
God's in charge. And when I accept that God's in charge, oh my God, literally, amazing things happen. So I, I got to I got to turn my will and my life over to the care of the, the God of my understanding, which, I mean, I came into the room with a huge belief in God. But over the years, uh, something changed because God wasn't doing what I thought God should do. God was clearly not taking the direction I was giving him. Uh, you know, and, and I was confused. I, I was very confused because, as I said, from the age of three or four, I mean, my whole life, all I wanted to do was serve God. I learned later that was just really in an advisory position. But what I had to do was take all that belief and all that faith and alchemize it into dependence because I had zero dependence on God when I came in here. And this whole notion of praying on your knees, which my sponsor suggested, I, I mean, I was very frank with her. I said, I don't do that. God and I are friends. I'm very close to God. Some days it's, it's very hard to tell us apart. <laughs> I thought that made me spiritual. I had led, you know, at this point I had led retreats where one of the things that we would do in the weekend, we would carve out an hour, an hour and a half. It was free time if you wanted it. But otherwise we'd go into the room with a fireplace and you'd sit and you'd talk to David. And you'd bring your deep spiritual questions to David. And David would answer your questions. I had, I had answers. Oh, God, did I have answers. I, it's so funny that it didn't occur to me that I, if I was so wise and so spiritual, why I could be so miserable. It made no sense. And that first person I called on the way home from my first uh, Al-Anon meeting that I ended up talking to, I was explaining how strange it was for me to be talking to someone and seeking advice, frankly, seeking uh, counsel, because I had always been the person who had done that. And she said, sounds like spiritual arrogance to me. <laughs> I was like, who the heck do you think you are? But she was dead on. I have thanked her so many times over the years. I still see her at least twice a week now in meetings. Um, oh, God. So so just, you know, turning the will uh, over to this to the care, not the iron fist, but the care of this God of my understanding, which allowed me, you know, my own God, male, female, didn't matter, whatever, um, but I didn't have to press my God on you. You get to have your own God, too. And, and doing the step work, making amends to my husband, which absolutely, talk about a new pair of glasses, just completely changed my perspective. Making amends to my sister. Um, you know, maybe some of you have had the experience that you thought the person for whom you needed to go to Al-Anon was the alcoholic. Um, thank God I learned that it was for me. But what I also learned was that there were all sorts of other important relationships that I had screwed up in my life because of my isms. And one of them was with my sister. And I, I had spent a lot of years writing my sister letters. By, by now she lives in Los Angeles with her family. And I had sent her long letters explaining why she was such a disappointment to me and she didn't show up for me here and there and all the And she just wasn't the sister I wanted and needed. And, uh, and I, you know, <laughs> a little fourth-step work will change your perspective on that, looking at that fourth column. And so I got to my amends, and um, when I said to her I, I needed to pull her aside and have a conversation with her, this is when I was out visiting a couple, well, several Christmases ago, um, and uh, she kept putting it off. And, I, and we were getting ready to leave for the airport, and I said, Lisa, I, r I really need to, I need to talk to you for a few minutes, please, in private. 
And she said, okay, unless you're going to tell me one more way you're disappointed in me. That was very powerful for me. And what I learned through making amends is that there, for me, you know, I practice all these steps for me. If I make an amends to you, it might do you some good. It might make you feel better. It might make you feel relieved. It might make you feel forgiven. It might make you hate me less or judge me less. But it might absolutely do nothing for you, and that's okay. Because the amends, like everything else in this program that I do, are for me. And so I don't say I'm sorry. I say I was wrong. And I list the character defects that were at play. I was wrong to be selfish. I was wrong to be self-seeking. I used to think it was just, um, what's the word, semantics? Self-seeking, selfish, self-centered. Just say it. It's just one thing. It's not. I've learned it's not. Selfishness is when I want it all for me. Self-seeking is when I want what I want, when I want it. And I, what's the third one? Self, what did I just say? Self-seeking, selfishness, self-centeredness. Thank you. Self-centeredness is when I take your actions personally. And I'm hearing things that you say, and, and they're not about me, but I think they're about me. And then, I know it's corny, but I have to clear out my ear with a Q-tip. Q-tip, quit taking it personally. So that's what I've learned to do is to stop taking al uh, alcoholism personally because it has nothing to do with me. And even in the case of my sister, who's not an alcoholic, she was raised in the same ho house I was. So I know her as a candidate for Al-Anon, doesn't choose to participate in it. But so she has a lot of the same isms I do. Surprise, surprise. Well, I will tell you also that in the first several years uh, that I started coming to Al-Anon, um, my husband started drinking more and more because I was no longer policing him. And uh, somewhere along the line, he stopped drinking. And I thought, woohoo, our troubles are over. <laughs> yeah, you're laughing. <laughs> sure, he started drinking again. And again, we're right back at the progressive disease of alcoholism where it gets worse. And it got worse, and it got a lot worse, and I won't share the details with you, but at one point, um, I mean, what, what changed for me was he started actually for the first time drinking in front of me. Because before it was always, I'm going to hide this, and I'm going to be secretive. And it was like, no, we're having cocktails. And I was just like, what am I going to do? And I talked to my sponsor, who all along had never said anything about, do you want to leave him? Because it wasn't up to her to decide for me. And I was not ready to say that. But I finally got to the point where I thought, do I want to leave him? Do I want to leave him? You know, early on, I would never have thought of that. My only two options, they said there's two sides to every Al-Anon, suicide, homicide. <laughs> I didn't have guts enough to do either one. My, my greatest fantasy was that he would be hit by a bus because I thought that would be the best solution because I would have nothing to do with me, my hands are clean, and I would then have your pity, which was my favorite thing, but at this point, I was just like, you know what, I, um, I don't know if I can stay. And my sponsor said something. I don't know where sponsors learn these things, but my sponsor said something to me. Just blew the top of my head off. She said, you know, David, if you stay, it's going to be really difficult. And if you leave, it's going to be really difficult. Thanks a lot. 
but it let me know that I had choices, you know, that fourth C. And the fifth C, which I learned, was consequences, that I get choices, and to every choice is a consequence. And here's the good news. I just kept doing my program. And a little over four years ago, he actually got sober. And today there's two programs being practiced in our house. It's pretty amazing. Another amazing thing that's happened is the wonderful friend of mine who told me about Al-Anon, who had had 18 or so years of sobriety, came into Al-Anon a few years ago. And uh, with her permission, I share this little note that she sent me on her, uh, I think it was her first birthday in Al-Anon. Because of your power of example, my life is forever changed. I thank God that you were courageous enough to open your heart to the program of Al-Anon so that you could save me a seat. Never in my life did I imagine that I could return the favor to the person who brought me to this magnificent program. But God had a plan. And I have found that to be true again and again and again. And I want to tell you a little bit about how that has played out in the last six months in my life. On December 18th of this past year, I had uh, my annual uh, holiday gathering at my house for my sponsees, the people they sponsor, the people they sponsor, and, and we sit around and we have a meeting. And um, this year I asked people to talk about a slogan that they were going to take to help them through the holidays. And the slogan that I chose was, this too shall pass. Because the next day my parents were arriving from Florida. And typically my parents spend Christmas with my sister and their grandchildren in Los Angeles. But it had been forever since they had celebrated Christmas with Anthony and I in Chicago. And so we made the plan. I spoke up, thanks to Alanon, had the courage to do so uh, six months or so before, and said, I'd really like to have you for Christmas this year. And it occurred to me that their visit, because they typically spend it in Los Angeles, that you know, at this point they were 82 and 88, that this might very likely be the last Christmas I would have with my parents. And so I talked about this too shall pass and, and using that to make the most of their visit. Well, I had no idea, no idea what God had planned. Because four days, five days later, my dad went in the hospital with a strangulated hernia. He had emergency surgery on Christmas Eve, nearly didn't survive. We went to bed Christmas Eve not knowing if he was going to live or die. Christmas Eve morning, or Christmas Day morning, I got a phone call from the hospital that he was waking up and we could come see him. And my sister and her family flew in and they visited with, with us and with him for a few days. And then things started to drastically go wrong. And one by one, the organs in his body started shutting down. And we lost him on January 16th, on Martin Luther King Day, that Monday. And f four hours later, I'm at a meeting. And God knew, I believe, what I needed more than anything that day, because there was a newcomer. And the meeting closed, and all but my sponsor and maybe one other person in the room had no idea that my father had just passed away that afternoon. And I walked up to that newcomer, and I shook his hand, and I gave him my card. And I introduced myself and said, how can I help you? And it just made it okay, just for a little bit. And since then, my mom has come to live with us. 
Not something I would have chosen. <laughs> but I'm glad that God did. I'm very thankful God did. I'm very thankful that there's a, a program happening in our house today. I'm very thankful that I could use my sponsor in this program to get over the experience two years earlier of watching my mother drink for the first time in 30 years. I'm very grateful that I could use that same program to say one appropriate thing this March when we went down to their condo in Florida to take care of some business and I saw her in the closet with a bottle of vodka. I'm very grateful that God saw fit to put my parents in Chicago for my dad to die, where there's program practiced in our house, where we now take my mom with her wish to an open AA meeting every Saturday morning, where somebody else comes to the house and picks her up. Women come to the house on Thursday night when I go off to my rehearsal. Somebody comes to the house and picks her up and takes her to a meeting. My mom is nearly blind. She walks with a cane. She has uh, a lot of difficulty um, just being. And it's a whole new thing for her. But God is watching out over us, and we are alive and well practicing the traditions in our home, which has saved us more than I can tell you. I, um, I need to close shortly, and I want to... Um, make sure I share this with you. I, uh, I turned eight on Thursday. <laughs> and, um, oh gosh. <laughs> My sponsor tells me that our age in program is a lot like our age in life, you know, the terrible twos and, or threes. And, you know, I'm an eight-year-old, so what do I know? I mean, I know nothing. Um, and, uh, because, as I said, because my husband now has four years of sobriety, our home is different. But I struggled with that in and out, that up and down, a lot. And I tell you, today I have more compassion. I mean, I, living with active alcoholism is really hard. And living with uh, a, an alcoholic who is in recovery um, is probably a lot better, but it's sometimes really hard. Um, living with a dry alcoholic is incredibly hard, but I'll tell you what I have the most compassion for, just because it's my experience, is living with somebody who's up and down and up and down, in and out of the program, a month sobriety, six months sobriety, and then up and down. Um, it's, it's the not knowing that is so hard. But as one of my favorite uh, AAs says, Scott L. from Nashville, he says, I used to think my problem was not knowing, and today I know my problem was needing to know that God's got it covered. And so on Thursday night, I got this card from Anthony. And with his permission, I share these few lines with you. Words cannot express my pride, love, and gratitude for who you are and how you show, how you show up in our relationship. I'm so appreciative of the blessings that have been given to us as a result of your commitment to your program of recovery. All my love your husband. I share that with you, not to pat my back. I share that with you because I believe that will offer somebody in the room some hope. Because I know there's somebody here who's practicing the program to their best, the best of their ability, and their spouse doesn't like it a bit. And I'll tell you, mine didn't either for a long time. But things change, and as we're told, don't leave before your miracle. They happen. They happen all the time. If we surrender, if we're willing, if we're honest, if we keep an open 
heart and a quiet mind. And I want to close by sharing a little story with you that sums it all up for me. Because when I got here, my biggest problem and my biggest fear all through my life was that I was going to be alone. There's this guy, and he's driving this uh, pickup truck down this rural highway, and it breaks down. And uh, he kind of lands in a ditch, and he's in the middle of nowhere. And he says, what am I going to do? So he starts walking. And he comes to a farmhouse, and he knocks on the door, and an old guy answers the door, and he says, how can I help you? And he explains the situation. And he says, do you have a plow? And the guy says, no, I don't have a plow, but I, um, well, I have my old mule, Blue, and maybe Blue can help you. I said, okay, let's give it a shot. And they go out to the barn, and they get Old Blue, and Old Blue gets up this arthritic old mule. And uh, the driver of the truck is shaking his head. This isn't going to help. But they go down the road a piece, and they hook Old Blue up to the pickup truck. And the driver stands by and watches, and the farmer says, okay, Blue, pull. Nothing. The driver says, I told you this was not going to work. The farmer says, wait a minute. Just just give me a minute. Come on, Blue. Pull, Blue. Pull, Jake. And the truck moves an inch. The driver's shaking his head. The farmer holds up a finger. Just a minute. Okay, Blue. Pull, Blue. Pull, Jake. Pull, Jasper. Pull. And Blue pulls that pickup truck out of the ditch. And the driver looks surprised, and he says, thank you very much, but I am a little confused. You have one mule, and you're calling three names, and I don't know what just happened here. And the farmer says, talking about old Blue, but he could have been talking about David. The farmer says, you know, old Blue isn't worth much all by himself. But when he thinks he's not alone... He can do some pretty amazing things. Thank you.